HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of A Taste of the Past is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. With Bob's Red Mill, you're not just getting quality, you're getting flavor-packed healthy food that actually tastes good. Visit bobsredmill.com today and use the code TASTEPOD, T-A-S-T-E-P-O-D, all one word, for 25% off your order. I'm HRN's Communication Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of the next episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. We're exploring the future of eating animals, and we're going beyond typical meat sources. If you look at the length of human history, we've been eating insects a lot longer than we haven't been in the United States and Western Europe. We're looking at unusual ways to purchase meat. People are like, really? Why would I want to buy that out of a machine? And we introduce you to Frank Reese, a poultry farmer whose traditional farming methods are featured in a new documentary. I'm a fourth-generation farmer in Kansas, and I focus basically all on standard-bred poultry and have my whole life. He's kind of the last one standing with these rarefied breeds that are so important for if we're going to eat chicken and turkey into the future. He's essential. He's a national treasure. Listen to Meat and 3 this week to better understand the history and the future of meat. Available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this weekly journey through culinary history. And, you know, about 25 years ago, I was visiting my sister in Indiana. She and her husband had bought a beautiful house and property kind of nestled amongst the cornfields and soybeans. Soybeans? I was stunned. I always remembered that part of town as corn country. When did this happen? And that was when I first took note of a change that had been going on for some time. America's agriculture has undergone many changes over the past century. And one of these major changes is the growth of soybean farming and how the little-known Chinese transplant came, became the nation's largest cash crop. My guest today, Matthew Roth, has written a new book, the book, on uh, the history and background of how this once-overlooked legume from East Asia jumped the Pacific Ocean, as he says, and grew to market heights that would impress even Jack with his beanstalk. The book is called Magic Bean, the rise of soy, rise of soy in America. 
Matthew Roth holds a PhD in history from Rutgers and has taught environmental history at Philadelphia University, and he is the assistant director of the University of Philadelphia's Andrea Mitchell Center for the Study of Democracy. Welcome, Matt. Oh, thank you for having me. As you say, we need the, the Center for Democracy, which we need a lot of study these days. <laughs> yeah, no, we aim to bring together uh, deep-thinking people to grapple with the challenges we face. Yes, so. indeed. Well, and we do face them. Well, you have an interesting story about how you became, well, I, I thought it was interesting, and I think <laughs> you probably do too, how you became interested in... Uh, in the topic, in the topic of soybeans, soy, tofu, which which came first, the chicken or the egg? Um, that is the question. That is the question. All right. And uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you were led into this, this field of study? Well, part of it's uh, personal. I've been a vegetarian since uh, 88 or 89. So uh, over the years, I've consumed my share of uh, tofu and TVP and uh, other soy and soy-based products uh, while they're uh, soy milk included. Um, so, you know, I have a grounding uh, in terms of that. Uh, but at one point, I think it was, uh, I was having a discussion on the subway with one of my colleagues at Rutgers uh, and realized I didn't really know when and where it had all come together, when tofu had become a thing. Was it just born in that milky substance? Or <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, I started from a, a, a place of pretty much near total ignorance, which is uh, where a lot of curiosity grows. Uh, and then as I looked into it, what hooked me as kind of a historical subject uh, was this weird double life that the soybean uh, lives, as you've alluded to. You know, by day, it's a key input into our industrialized meat and food processed food system. Uh, by night, it's this icon of the natural foods and vegetarian right. movements. Right. Uh, it's an ethnic food. On the other hand, it's an all-American crop. So this doubleness or duality interested me uh, in terms of how did that come about? Are those two lives in tension with one another? Did they at certain points nurture one another, which came first? Uh, so it was that set of issues uh, that sort of motivated looking deeper into it as uh, an historical subject. Hmm. Well, I was interested to find, as I was reading through the book, that um, indeed there have been movements for to change diets for over the year, for many years, over yes. the years. Um, but that soy. Ha has actually been around in this country for quite some time, which I was unaware of. Um, you know, I figured after the turn of the century, the 1900s, that mm -hmm. the early, maybe 40s, but mm -hmm. much earlier than that. So when did that little bean jump the ocean? Well, um, part of the complexity of the story and what I try to grapple with is that uh, it jumped several times without really uh, taking. Uh, and uh, for this, we uh, have a great debt to Ted Heimowitz. He's a plant geneticist at uh, the University of Illinois and a dogged archivist. And he has uncovered some of those earliest jumps, uh, including uh, as early as 1765, uh, a sailor um, in the East India Company named Samuel Bowen uh, started growing soybeans in Delaware to process into soy sauce which was the first kind of global commodity that uh, soybeans were involved in. And in fact, our word for 
soybeans comes from soy sauce and not the other way around. Mm. Um, in 1770, uh, Benjamin Franklin, who I am obligated to mention because I'm uh, currently live in Philadelphia, <laughs> sent uh, soybeans to uh, his agent in Philadelphia, John Bertram, um, and mentioned in a letter that uh, they were used to make a type of cheese. Uh, so that was a mention of tofu, which, okay. by the way, uh, in Philadelphia, there's this uh, uh, restaurant devoted to colonial era cuisine called the City Tavern, yes, which because of because of that letter, uh, felt licensed to serve grilled tofu on its menu, you know, uh, therefore <laughs> allowing uh, vegans and vegetarians to enter what would otherwise uh, be a problematic yeah. space for them. Uh, there was uh, an amazing instance in early 1850s when uh, a group of Japanese sailors uh, who were supposed to be plying the coast of Japan, got lost in the deep ocean. They were rescued by a ship called the Auckland, which then docked in San Francisco, making these exotic Japanese sailors uh, celebrities. It just so happened somebody named Benjamin Franklin Edwards, no relation uh, to our founding father, uh, visited them, as many did, and somehow uh, they gave him a gift of what turned out to be soybeans, which he took back to Illinois, uh, distributed through botanical gardens. I think some of it made its way to the U.S. Patent Office and was distributed more widely. Uh, there's no, I think, evidence that any of those, you know, that lineage still exists in Illinois, but uh, there it was. Hmm. And then starting in the 1870s and 1880s, uh, drawing on growing interest in Europe in the soybean and soy foods, a lot of agricultural experiment stations uh, started importing soybean varieties and experimenting with them. Um, but my point in the book is that a lot of this earlier uh, imports, they did not really take or take off, uh, that it took uh, many tries. And in particular, uh, it took uh, involvement by the federal government at the turn of the 20th century uh, to really get things moving. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's I mean, that's what I say. That's where I expected to it to you know occur and, and happen. I didn't even realize that there was any attempt earlier than that until I you know read your book. Mm -hmm. um, and somebody had made some mention about uh, likening one of the the fellows who received a little packet, just like Jack receiving his packet yes. of magic beans, <laughs> um, but or Johnny Appleseed that it was uh, kind of likened to Johnny Appleseed distributing these these beans mm -hmm. across the country, figuring out where they might where they might grow, right? Well, I think, uh, I think in the book I call it the soybean pipeline, uh, which is a little bit of a misnomer because it was actually set up more generally to scour the earth for economically useful plants uh, and then import them and distribute them uh, and create industries in the U.S. Uh, based around these various plants. And it just so happened that soybeans got caught up in that. Uh, there was, uh, you know, expeditions uh, basically on foot in China going around collecting all sorts of plants. And yes, these little packets of soybeans, uh, what eventually turned out to be thousands of introductions over the course of about a decade, uh, made their way to D.C. And then uh, the folks at the Office of Forage Crop Investigations painstakingly sorted them, planted them, saw what their characteristics were, what climates 
uh, they were best suited for, distributed them to agricultural experiment stations, and then extension services, uh, you know, tried to recruit farmers to plant and experiment with them. Uh, so it was uh, a large uh, sort of centralized effort uh, to move these thousands of varieties from uh, their origin place in China all the way onto American farmland. Hmm. And it's interesting because you said the, the uses for them it was, was always considered, not considered only, but it is an ethnic soy products or mm -hmm. soybeans and ethnic food. And, and true, um, I just, we were remarking before the show, there's a picture, a photo of a bowl of edamame on oh, the yes. cover of the book. And I was thinking, how many people was for, for whom was that their first introduction to the soybean as not as you know, soy sauce, soy milk, mm -hmm. tofu, but realizing, oh my goodness, it's actually a bean and it's in a pod. And that, of course, you know, became very popular, you know, in Japanese restaurants mm -hmm. to get, you know, a little appetizer, a little, you know, snack of the edamame in a bowl before your sushi or something. Well, that... uh, Bill Shirtliff of the Soy Info Center uh, out in uh, near Berkeley, and uh, and I, for anyone interested in in-depth knowledge of everything soy, I invite them to go to his website, soyinfocenter.com. Soyinfocenter.com. Uh, he and his wife, uh, Akiko, or I think former wife at this point, Akiko Ayagi wrote the book of tofu back in the 70s, uh, and he's been pulling together an archive of, uh, an amazing archive of soy-related materials ever since. Uh, but he tells what might be an apocryphal story, that uh, one of the main popularizers of uh, sushi and thus edamame uh, was the airing of Shogun in huh. what was that uh, 1984 uh, or yeah, something? Yeah, about then. I, it doesn't surprise me. And yeah. then it started a, all things Japanese uh, craze. Right. But I think even prior to that there were uh, you know, a growing number of Japanese restaurants already catering to uh, Japanese businessmen who were you know, traveling back and forth uh, in any case, during that kind of heyday of mm -hmm. the Japanese economy. So I think, uh, you know, but suddenly uh, Americans got very interested in it. But much earlier than that, um, there there were efforts to to popularize or at least introduce soy products, soy milk in particular, mm -hmm. um, with people, you know, groups... Um, advocating for a different lifestyle, the Seventh-day Adventists, who yes. you know, were big in that. You mentioned and uh, mm -hmm. talk about a lot in your book. Um, you know, vegetarianism, lighter things, people who are lacto-intolerant, um, mm -hmm. wanting soy milk. But yet it wasn't popular. It wasn't the norm. You'd have to go out of your way even, well, even you know, from me back in the day. You, know, yeah. you have to go out of your way to find these soy products in health food stores and, and different things. And and that begs the question, how did the government, how did um, the agriculturists convince people to turn their crops from whatever they were growing, you know, the spinach that always dried up or cornfields that you know, needed a rotation, mm -hmm. into uh, soy fields? How did, how did that, you know, it was a tough sell, I would imagine. Well, um, the main transition happened... Uh, in the 1920s in the Midwest. Uh, and I should say prior to that, uh, the people who were promoting soybeans, uh, primarily Charles Piper and William Morse in that forage crop department, who ended up writing 
The Soybean, which was the book on soybeans, uh, they had expected uh, soy to become popular in the South. They were pushing it as a Southern crop hmm. initially uh, because uh, at that time the boll weevil was ravaging its way through the South and agricultural reformers uh, saw an opportunity here to turn uh, Southern agriculture away from a cotton monoculture uh, to a more diversified, uh, advanced form of farming in their mind. Uh, and they saw the soybean as holding potential here because uh, it can be crushed into oil and then high-protein meal, which can be used as feed, much the way that cottonseed can. And uh, prior to that, cottonseed had kind of risen as a major component of the value of the cotton crop. Uh, tenants uh, basically made most of their income from taking the leftover cottonseed to the mills and having them crushed. And so the thinking was, uh, there's a ready-made industry here. All we have to do is swap uh, soybeans in for the cottonseed, cotton cotton seed, and there you go, uh, as the cottonseed collapses. Uh, it never really took that way. Uh, there was markedly more soybeans grown, but mostly for hay, for just direct foraging, uh, largely because uh, at that point in history, the boll weevil did damage, but ultimately King Cotton was not dethroned. Mm -hmm. uh, that didn't happen until the 30s and 40s, in which, at which time soybeans did uh, become a major southern crop. Uh, but their primary inroad uh, earlier than that was into the Midwest, following the war and the collapse of farm prices and a sense uh, in the Corn Belt uh, that they were facing a similar crisis to the South in that they had this kind of corn monoculture that was uh, destroying the fertility of the soil. Mm -hmm. And as their productivity went down, a lot of corn and wheat was grown uh, farther west where, you know, you had big fields, you could grow a lot more of it. So even as their productivity declined, uh, prices didn't go up because so much more was being grown in other parts of the country. Uh, so there was this feeling that they needed to diversify and they needed to find a way to restore fertility to the soil, which is when folks at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign uh, went full hog behind the soybean as a way to achieve those. Uh, but at that point, it was another you know, decade-plus to actually uh, have the soybean take root in the Corn Belt. Uh, it went through several cycles. The first idea was that you would just plant it in the field and let the hogs run out and uh, you know chew it down. <laughs> it was called hogging down the fields. And uh, this was a cheaper, more cost-effective way of uh, giving your hogs their protein ration, uh, saving you some money to compensate for the fact that hog prices were also going down because of a glut. And they didn't even have to crush the bean to get the, right. <laughs> the meal. Uh, ultimately, the problem with that is that the oil in soybeans produces what was called soft pork, uh, uh, just kind of pork that would, uh, Melt you away. know, kind of Dolly-esque <laughs> pork on the plate, which nobody wanted. Um, so eventually, they knew they had to implant an actual soybean crushing industry uh, in the Corn Belt, uh, and that took about a decade, you know, of concerted effort by uh, not just the uh, folks in the university, but also uh, A.E. Staley of Decatur, Illinois, which eventually became the soy capital of, well, the world. Right. Uh, 
to really get it so that farmers uh, would plant them and sell them uh, to be crushed and not just hold them back hoping for good seed prices later on. Uh, so anyway, it was yeah. it was a long effort to do that. But uh, after about 1928 or 29, uh, farmers and everyone up kind of the chain started making capital investments in soybeans. And at that point, uh, they go from being this thing that might have happened to might not have happened uh, to being something that's on a pretty firm footing. Well, it, around that time, then, I would imagine that's when it, you know, when historians refer to the fact that it was um, considered the linchpin of animal cult agriculture. Mm-hmm. And that was the time you're saying of hogging, hogging the fields down yes. and giving them their protein or the crushing of the meal. I and mean, this was this was really important in terms of animal feed, no question. Yeah. But still, there weren't a lot of edible products for the the human market for. The, for the market shelves for people to eat. Right. Um, and there were some innovations that came along. Mm-hmm. So you know what? We're going to take a short break. Okay. And when we come back, we'll talk about that. Okay. In one of my recent episodes, I spoke to Raman Ganeshram, about her book, Sweet Hands, The History of Cooking with Coconut in Trinidad and the Tobagos. And in that book, there was a fantastic recipe for coconut bread. Kind of a bread, kind of a cake. It was, it is, I've made it several times, it's delicious and it's dense, and it's a staple in many of the homes in Trinidad. If you listen to episode 260... You can hear about this coconut bread. And if you're interested in making it, you can go to bobsredmill.com. Did you know that Bob's Red Mill stocks shredded coconut, coconut flakes, and coconut flour, even coconut sugar? Anything you would need to make a fabulous coconut bread. And don't forget to use the code TASTEPOD, T-A-S-T-E-P-O-D, one word, for 25% off your order. Between your life. Hi, we're back, and and in the interest of continuing to promote um, products and the network, you know Heritage Radio Network happens to be in in our uh, summer fun drive right now, and we are, for those of you who don't know or aware, we are a listener-supported radio network. So if you're interested in continuing to keep shows like this on the internet and continuing to listen to the podcasts, I urge you to go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the little beating heart in the upper right-hand corner that is the donate button and become a member. In fact, I have a special offer for the first five new members who go down, scroll down, when you press individual membership, um, that's a $60 donation. And if you scroll down to designation or what do you want to do, something special with this gift, if you scroll down and designate a taste of the past as your designated benefactor, I will send you the second edition of Eaton Magazine. Eaton Magazine is the magazine of food history. And it's a fun new uh, 
publication, and I think you'll enjoy it. Filled with a lot of wonderful stories and interesting stories like some of those that you'll hear here on my show. So please help support us, and I will, the first five members that designate Taste of the Past will receive issue number two of Eaton Magazine. And now back to Soy with Matt yes. Roth, <laughs> Matthew Roth, um, and he's written the book Magic Bean, Rise of Soy in America. Mm-hmm. Truly interesting. So we were talking about the how the growth of the of, of the agricultural purposes of yes. of the fields of the bean, but there was still that tough sell to get people to like some of the products. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say byproducts because they are products. I mean, the soybeans did, uh, I mean, they have a lot of uses. You were saying the oils, they're used, the oils, they would process the oils out of it. It's used in plastics. Mm-hmm. Who wants to drink milk that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's used with right. oils in it? Made <laughs> it was a tough sell, no question about it. And a lot of people didn't like the taste, and there were some interesting people in you have stories about some interesting people that have helped bring that along and change all that and it's funny i I do have to mention the quote that you included um from the late 20s henry ford who had his finger on the pulse of everything you know Mm -hmm. more mechanical said well he intended to do the same thing with the cow that he did to the horse make it a more efficient machine yeah yeah no he uh so instead it was the soybean and not the cow yeah he said that even before he had uh come across the soybean he just figured uh all that a cow does is take a bunch of grass or vegetable matter and somehow uh, make it into milk so why couldn't a machine do it just as well uh which you know it's more complicated than that (laughs) uh so uh so he but he did set up a lab for food experimentation uh, that eventually centered on the soybean, and he became uh, a major soybean enthusiast. He actually set up a soybean plant in Greenfield Village, which was sort of his historical uh, set, a collection of historical buildings, but also in honor of his uh, uh, idol uh, Edison, also had working labs to experiment with the industrial and food uses of soybeans. Um, and uh, he set up, uh, you know, a small soy milk manufactory. Uh, apparently, the milk was popular with some of his Filipino workers, uh, but I don't think was served much more widely than that. Oh. Well, then there's um, Harry... Harry... Uh, Harry Miller? Miller. Harry yes. Miller. I was going to say Wilson, but... Mm-hmm. <laughs> Harry Miller. And people complained about the taste of soy milk. They complained about... Uh, the fact that it produced uh, gassiness. Yes. And it was his goal to to make it taste better, right? Yeah. What, but why? What was the background of, of well, Harry, Harry Miller? Harry Miller. Uh, and uh, he, he led a long and storied career. And so uh, consequently, there are many, many stories that he told over the years about what inspired him to work with soybeans and soy milk. Uh, he was a Seventh-day Adventist missionary, uh, and uh, you alluded to them earlier, uh, they are largely vegetarians, uh, not always vegans, but uh, inclined to turn away from uh, animal products. Uh, and he early on went to China. He saw tofu being made. Uh, at that point, um, you know, people, uh, the Chinese would add gypsum to soy milk to curdle it. 
as the curdling agent and to someone of his mindset, which was like, that looks like an adulterant to me. <laughs> uh, he said, well, that's terrible. Why not just drink the soy milk? Uh, and then he did drink the soy milk and discovered that it had a bitter taste and left him feeling gassy, uh, which was something that uh, generations of soy milk technologists uh, grappled with. I think I have uh, a list of patents that were actually filed during the uh, 1910s uh, for creating soy milk uh, at a time when uh, cow's milk was seen as a, a health danger. So there was this mm -hmm. idea. Uh, and most of them, you know, the usual solution was that you just boil the heck out of it. Uh, and that takes care of a lot of the, uh, well, protease inhibitors and a lot of the uh, uh, gas-causing agents, as well as some of the bitter taste, uh, but also risks scorching the milk, etc. And none of those patents really uh, became much of anything at that time. In the 1930s, uh, he was again trying to uh, create a soy milk. In part, he was uh, running the Shanghai Sanitarium in China and was looking for a good weaning food for babies who he thought were uh, going hungry because they were weaned early. Uh, so that was another impetus toward that. Uh, and his eventual solution uh, and which in some stories he mentions coming to him as kind of a voice or a vision, uh, was to use live steam. And that, in other words, send steam through the milk, which tends to agitate it and evaporate the volatile organic chemicals, uh, you know, at a lower temperature than you would need for boiling it. So you get the advantages of, uh, eliminating those things without the disadvantages of, you know, boiling the heck out of it. Uh, it seems like he got the idea, in fact, from seeing how things like soybean oil were processed in a similar way. Um, but at that point, he uh, applied for a patent and was given a patent for debittered soybean milk. When he had to flee China during World War II, he set up shop, I think, in Indiana. Uh, and he uh, started producing soy milk. He tried to produce it for adults and for children. Uh, suffice it to say, there was enough dairy milk at that point and few enough fears of its health dangers uh, that he had a hard time getting into the market. Uh, though eventually he did uh, market the children's soy milk, I think it was called Soyalac, for mm -hmm. children with milk allergies. Right. And meanwhile, his process had taken off in Asia itself, in places like Hong Kong and Taiwan, and eventually uh, returned to us in the form of Vitasoy. I don't know if you remember yes, that. Yes, of course I do. So that yeah. was based on his, uh, on his patent many years later, as it had been adopted and produced by Asian companies. Yeah. So eventually the, the um, acceptance of these alternative milks for people who want them, need them, or mm -hmm. just want to, you know, try them have grown. Obviously, you just walk into any any grocery store these days, and the shelves are filled right next to the milk, which is a smaller selection yes. in some stores. There are just rows and rows of all kinds of alternative milks, um, certainly soy milk, but there's yes. almond milk and, and all kinds of other um, alternative milks, alternative milks, but, you know, vegetable-based milks well, offered. 
the, the dairy industry highly resents them being called milks. Milk. And uh, yeah, I know. Well, you don't have to go liquid, you know, juice. <laughs> <laughs> Not that we should kowtow to the dairy industry, but right, yeah, it's, right, it's a right. live issue. Yeah. Right. So, you know, and more and more people eating tofu and whatever mm-hmm. else. So, so when, so talk about soybeans being a cash crop. I mean, mm-hmm. when did this really have that economic effect that they were really, um, in other words, how many how many fields of soy you know how many acres of soy is being produced, uh, grown in America, and, and what are the returns on it as compared, let's say, to corn? Uh, I think it's about equal with corn now. Huh. Uh, I and I believe the acreage is somewhere around eighty million acres. Uh, yeah, don't. I didn't mean to throw. I didn't ask you ahead of time to have those figures, but right. I just I'll, figured I'll you had a, out a those, ballpark uh, in there. You know? Yeah, no, and I have a, a chart in the book that shows. Uh, The gradual growth of acreage over the course of the 20th century, and you can see some of the big jumps. A big jump happened during World War II when, again, uh, the federal government took a hand in uh, expanding and organizing the industry so that it could produce more meal for livestock. And largely because of that, um, uh, there were no uh, drastic meat shortages during World War II. Uh, the the ration for Americans was something like twice that of uh, people in Britain. Uh, yeah, the I mean soldiers... they had they had war diets. I mean they they promoted the government pro- promoted the uh, soy in the in the the war diets. You know, save yes. You know, send the food to the boys abroad and eat. You know, these but... products, these <laughs> meat <laughs> substitutes. Yeah, but... and largely uh, kinds of soybean bread, and um, I mean the the recurring story in the book is that, uh, especially during times of crisis, uh, people thought now is the time we have reached this point where we have reached the end of feeding people meat. Uh, We have to look elsewhere because we are in crisis. uh, And the meat, uh, meat production cannot expand anymore. We have to go through alternatives. And the recurring story is that never happened, really. Hmm. Uh, it was thought of during World War I, uh, much more so during World War II, where you had, for instance, the uh, New York State Emergency Food Commission uh, predicting that there will be not enough feed grain, uh, including soy, for both humans and animals, so we're going to have to kill off the animals and learn to eat something else. Uh, and that was a major impetus to trying to get people to eat soy protein and soy soybeans directly as soy foods either they're asian uh, as asian soy foods or as in kind of newfangled meat substitutes or particularly as um, in enriched bread that sort of thing uh, but the recurring story is that again that didn't happen largely because of the soybean uh, they managed to ramp up soy production so much that uh, by the end of World War II, they were producing more meat than ever. Huh. Uh, and that continued after World War II with a major increase, not just of uh, beef, but especially of things like uh, the broiler industry uh, for chickens, the pork industry, all major consumers of soy, um, which largely kept that crisis that would make us have to turn to eating soy directly uh, from ever happening. Uh, so what eventually happened instead is that you had the counterculture embracing soy for its own reasons. The whole hippie movement and the macrobiotic biotic diets. Exactly. And, uh, things, yeah. um, but, you know, you mentioned um, 
well, other, I know we actually we had talked before the show and we were talking about how much soy, um, how many soy soybeans field acres of soybeans grown. Mm-hmm. That um, interestingly enough, we like with some other crops, um, we export a lot of the soybeans oh, to yeah. Asia, right? Yes, they make their soy sauce and tofu, and then. We mostly, buy it back. <laughs> mostly what they make is what we make with it, which are, you know, chickens and pork. So you, they use uh, it as the protein, the yeah. protein source. I mean, that's, yeah. um, if you're pointing, if, if there's kind of a world transformative story in here, um, it's that uh, the abundance of protein in soybeans and the abundance of soybeans grown in the United States has led not only to uh, a massive expansion of meat production in this country, uh, but the world over, and often promoted by the U.S. government, uh, you know, uh, creating markets for soybeans in foreign lands uh, by trying to uh, kind of instill broiler production, as I mentioned before. Um, So that's kind of uh, the world transformative story. to kind of a dyed-in-the-wool vegetarian such as myself. <laughs> I don't know if that's the story I would have wanted to tell. Right. Uh, am I still looking for that? Yeah, the shelves aren't, aren't, aren't spewing out packets of, of tofu. I mean, yeah. It's right. Like... Uh, but yeah, I mean, the preponderance of soy is, goes towards meat production and goes towards uh, salad oil, uh, not towards your traditional Asian foods or even your you know, fabricated yeah. meat products. Although you, it is much more prevalent than ever, ever before. Yes. Did the government ever offer incentives to farmers to to switch their crops over to soybeans? Uh, kind of in a uh, backhanded way. Uh, what happened was that uh, at various times, and especially after the uh, New Deal agricultural system was mm-hmm. put in place and after World War II, uh, there were these systems of quotas and... Uh, acreage allotments and uh, conservation payments to take acreage out of production. Uh, And especially there were disincentives to plant crops that were in glut, such as cotton or wheat uh, or corn, whenever they happened to be in glut. So farmers were told to divert their acres from those crops. Uh, And often as not, what they diverted to were soybeans. and. So soybeans provided kind of a safety valve, maybe, for some of the New Deal policies that were restricting other crops. Uh, Really, through maybe even today, uh, they remained uh, probably the most free market of crops. Their price was established by the commodity exchanges and not by the support price of government, which was kept low. Uh, And in fact, they were not highly subsidized until the mid-90s in the aftermath of the Freedom to Farm Act, uh, which provided uh, price supports. Uh, And then the subsidies went way up, but then with, uh, again, uh, the growth of China and their purchase of a large portion of our soybean crop, the uh, prices stabilized, so our government support for soybeans actually went down somewhere in the middle of the uh, first decade of uh, this century. So, um, in a lot of ways, the government um, has not directly supported soybeans uh, in terms of price supports, but has done it in other ways. Like I mentioned before, uh, the government actively promoted exports, especially of uh, soybean oil, uh, through the Food for Peace program and other ways, and uh, used money to 
uh, again, grow uh, meat industries in other countries through aid programs. So there were concerted efforts to create a market worldwide for American soy, uh, but fewer kind of direct payments to American farmers themselves. Hmm, interesting. And, and, and the, um, I mean, the crops just continue. I mean, the, the, it's a, still a, such a vac, you know, active, yes. uh, growing industry. What do you see as we wrap up here? I like how you said a world change, uh, you know, transformation, you know, transform, you know, transforming product byproduct is the fact that it was the linchpin of the animal agriculture. Yes. Um, what do you see as the future? Yeah, um, what do you see in the future for soybean crops? Don't ask a historian <laughs> to predict the future because <laughs> I know we always look back, but you know, but I mean, is it, this is we're, we're still trying to figure out why stuff happened a hundred years ago the way it did. So who knows? Who knows? Um, yeah. I have to is say... Is it a sustainable... First of all, is it a sustainable crop? And are there going to be problems with sustainability in growing this? this? Um, it's, it's hard to judge. I mean, the thing that I've learned going back through the history again is that um, there have been many predictions of the demise of our ability to eat meat. And... Uh, it hasn't yet it happened. It hasn't happened, right? Uh, so I'm I'm loath to predict that some external crisis will force us all uh, to turn towards eating soybean protein directly. Uh, I think the place where that comes from is uh, call it you know ideology, call it belief, uh, call it uh, an idea that it's the right thing to do. Uh, but if we're going to be eating more an uh, vegetable protein directly, it'll be because we want to, I think, and not because we're forced right. to. Right. But, you know, time will tell. Interesting. And so many other interesting stories that, that we could do another show on. Just um, Yeah, some we never of the... even got to the cheetahs with fertility problems. Right, right. <laughs> okay. And, the, well, and we touched on the hippie move, and we could talk the whole thing. that I learned a lot of new things I didn't know before mm-hmm. about that. I was there, but I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, but a lot of interesting things happening with soy and other groups of people. It was, it's, it's just an interesting book. And, um, and I thank you for sharing the interesting story. And it's well, thank you. something that we, you know, that it's, it's in our presence and something we all we around us need to acknowledge, right? The magic bean rise of soy in America. Matthew Roth, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you very much. And thank you for listening. It's been another taste of the past. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. 
Simplecast is a popular hosting and analytics platform that allows podcasters to easily host and publish to apps like Apple Podcasts. If you have a podcast or are looking to create your very first, check it out. Try it for free and save half off your first three months at simplecast.com forward slash heritage.